Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. Sir Thomas Blundell, a professor from the University of Cambridge, is one of the people who first discovered what insulin looks like, a medical breakthrough in the 1960s for diabetes patients everywhere. His previous work also contributed significantly to understanding how to stop the progression of HIV to AIDS and to developing new drugs for cancer treatment. As a scientist, he's been everywhere, even advising the late British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher in the 80s. Professor Sir Thomas Blundell was recently at the University of Melbourne presenting the 2019 Grimwade Visiting Fellow Oration, titled Science, Society and Spinouts, From Genomes and Structural Biology to Drug Discovery. He sat down to chat with our reporter, Dr Andy Horvath, who reckons he's a bit of a Renaissance man. When you meet people in the public and they ask you, what do you do, like at a barbecue, what do you say? I say... Usually that I make medicines because I do basic science, which is underpinning uh, the ways we make new drugs uh, for uh, cancer and also for tuberculosis. Uh, But I'm a basic scientist and um, I think it's beautiful But I've also been lucky that I've been able to create companies and the medicines I've made are on the market uh, for cancer. I want to delve deeper into the world of the molecules because that's where you do your work. Your speciality is protein assemblies. You look at the way DNA repairs itself. And this is all happening at the level of the cell at the level of molecules and, of course, proteins. So you've buried yourself into what they call structural biology. The first thing is I can't see it with light, so I have to use a different kind of way of looking at things. And it turns out that if I use X-rays with very short wavelengths, I can see these very tiny molecules. And I can also use other methods like uh, electron microscopy. And I can begin to see the individual molecules. And I was one of those who, in the 1960s, uh, discovered what insulin looks like, what these very complicated molecules which are of very great importance in uh, keeping, in this case, diabetics alive. You're looking at this invisible world where all the action is. Tell us about the different roles of some of these molecules in our cells that are responsible for basic functions. Well, I've worked on two kinds of molecules. Uh, One kind is what we would call a catalyst. It will change uh, something uh, to something which is active. Uh, That kind of molecule we find, for example, in HIV. Uh, In HIV, uh, it's a very 
small genome. It uh, has around 10 products which form the virus. And uh, one of the key components is what we might consider a pair of scissors. So we have a long chain and the scissors cut things up. And so one thing that I did in the 80s was to describe these pair of scissors and then suggest how we might stop them working so that somebody who was infected with the virus would not get HIV AIDS. Uh, so that's one kind of thing. I'm stopping the catalyst to work. But the other kind of target that I work with is really about signaling. So I worked on insulin. Insulin is a hormone and it signals, it controls blood pressure. I uh, wanted to understand that and of course, many people have to take insulin if they're diabetics to keep insulin levels correct. And so I wanted to see whether I could modify it a little bit so that people with diabetes didn't have to take it so often. And, and so the insulin that they took, say, once a day would be long-lasting. So two different kinds of design problems, both to treat diseases, one uh, an infection and the other disease uh, really quite often genetic. Professor, is there a project that you worked on and you've worked on many, your reputation precedes you, is there one that particularly surprised you that you thought, wow, nature is very interesting? Surprised me, of course, I always assume something I'm going to to learn from every project I do. I guess surprised me it was really the second thing I did. And because I was working on insulin as I said in the 1960s and insulin puts blood sugar levels uh, down but there's a yin and yang of blood pressure. And there's another hormone called glucagon that put it up. And what I was very surprised to find was that although insulin was kind of preformed, it had a shape, the glucagon had no shape until it found its receptor, its target. And it turns out that what we discovered in the 60s and 70s were the two different ways that these peptide factors that control most aspects of you and me, uh, their regulators, their signalers, those two models are quite general. So I was surprised that nature didn't preform everything. That, that it assembled when it interacted. That was a real surprise. A lot of this basic research ends up at, eventually at the clinical end where you have patients who are now surviving or leading a, a better life 
and having better health. Have you met some of the people whose lives you've changed? I have done. Of course, uh, I have two cancer medicines that are being sold all over the world, and that came out of my company. But uh, some time ago, I was lecturing at a, at a meeting, and uh, Bill Gates heard about me, and he came to my company and asked that we started working on tuberculosis. And uh, tuberculosis, of course, is a very different disease. It's an infection. And my company is a cancer company. So what we did was to say, we'll try and help you with the new method we've invented. It's getting drugs to work, uh, but... In tuberculosis, you're not really going to be able to sell your drugs, and so we have to do it differently because most people with tuberculosis are in developing countries. You have to do it in a different way. So we did it in my laboratory, and um, we've made quite a lot of progress. But then another thing happened, and that was that I didn't realize that leprosy was very closely related, as it happens, to tuberculosis. And uh, I was lecturing in the United States. I had a 1,000 people around me. I was on the pedestal. And uh, at the end of my lecture, I answered questions. I was a little bit nervous because I didn't know as much about the whole area of mycobacteria. And I looked down in the pedestal, and there were very serious people at the bottom of the steps. I walked down rather slowly, nervously, and one guy pushed the other one forward, and he said, he's going to work in your laboratory from tomorrow. I said... Who are you? Who's he? And what's he going to do? And he said, we're from the American Leprosy Mission, and we want you to use your techniques in leprosy. And so after three years of working in this area, just two weeks ago, I went to the International Congress of Leprosy, and there it was very different. There were leprosy patients, carers, medical doctors, clinicians who are scientists, and basic scientists. So I think this is the first time, very different from cancer, where I was with 1,500 people. I got on the pedestal and gave a talk. But in my audience were patients, carers, medical doctors, that's not so usual, but it was a wonderful experience. I want to hear the stories about your cancer drugs, how it started and how it led on this journey to be a drug. Well, the cancer drugs came because during the 1980s, the Institute of Cancer Research said to me, what you're working on a very complex, what we call multi-component, multi-protein systems. 
And many of the things in cancer that uh, happen, and of course you get mutations occurring randomly, affects these systems. And so we wanted you to work with us, and we'll fund a cancer unit for you. So I set up that unit. I was very happy developing rather basic ideas. And then two things happened. The first one was that I was advising our Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. You may have heard of her. <laughs> uh, I'm a left-wing socialist, by the way. Uh, but I worked with Margaret Thatcher in Number 10 for three years. And she wanted me to uh, go and reorganize research. So I had to stop. Uh, a lot of my basic research, not all of it, and go and organize public research. After six years, I finished doing that, and I thought, why don't I form a company and, and do it in a company? Because, you know, with two or three people, I can't do too much. And so with a very brilliant student, who uh, studied with me in the 1980s. So we're now in 1999, so 15 years later or so. We went to another student of mine and said, we want to use the ideas we've been thinking about in an academic way to form a company. And this entrepreneurial person who ran a, a company for funding early uh, discoveries, he was very skeptical. He said, Tom, I'll give you some money, but a small amount, just for a year, uh, because I'm pretty sure what you're going to do is not going to work. So uh, you may think it's a lot of money. I got half a million dollars, uh, and after one year... Everything worked. So I then moved the company from my laboratory in the University of Cambridge. My colleague joined us, and we set up a new uh, company on the Science Park. And uh, from just a few people, uh, we got 150 people. We developed the ideas uh, of targeting some of the molecules I've been working on academically. And with a huge investment from the venture capital and then collaboration with a large company, uh, I eventually, and it took me a long time, uh, actually 1999 to uh, 2017, 18 years before the drug my first drug got on the market in 2017, and it's for breast cancer. And then uh, we have a number in clinical trials, but this year I got another one on the market, uh, and that's for urethral carcinoma, so another kind of cancer. And so out of that basic idea, a small amount of money, but quite a long time, I've now got cancer medicines being made available to anybody, and they're selling in the United States, in Europe, 
uh, throughout the world. You're an extraordinary problem solver in the world of what's happening down in the cell and what's happening down at levels of proteins and molecules. What's the secret to your success? I was always interested in doing a range of different things. I came from a family where my grandfather was a very gifted artist and musician. However, my parents left school when they were 14 and 15, and they had no vision of what I could do, but they had confidence in me. And so I was the first person anywhere in the family to stay at school beyond the age of 15. And that inspiration from my parents' encouragement uh, allowed me to think much more broadly than maybe others. So I was already running a jazz group. I was already um, well uh, used to organizing things. I won a scholarship to Oxford, and I soon became chairman of the biggest club in the University of Oxford for undergraduates, and that was called the Joint Action Against Racial Intolerance. And uh, I was interested in that because my mother had encouraged people from over the world uh, to come and stay in our house. Um, even though she'd left school at 14. And uh, so I had this vision that I could help. And then I realized that in Oxford, we had a big motor industry, Prestil, and people were coming from Bengal in India, and they were coming from the West Indies. And they were having problems. So I then moved outside the university and set up a new organization. And from that, eventually, I got elected to the city council. And so I ended up running a large part of the city of Oxford at the same time as doing my science. So I'm a little bit unusual because I've ended up doing things in politics, things in music, and things in my basic science. And that then, of course, led me to advise prime ministers and to run organizations and found companies. You're a broad thinker and a renaissance man of sorts. (laughs) (laughs) Sort of. (laughs) Professor Blundell, what advice do you give to your students? My students uh, come to a laboratory which is, I think, quite unusual. First, it is multidisciplinary. I've been in a physics department, a chemistry department. I've been head of all biology and preclinical work in Cambridge. So first, multidiscipline. Secondly, I work with one of the most famous women scientists in the world, Dorothy Hodgkin. She was a Nobel Prize winner in the 1960s, and uh, she taught me that you have to have gender balance and that women can be incredible scientists. So the second thing I, I tell my students, and they can see it in my lab, is you've got to be gender diverse. 
And then thirdly, I learned from Dorothy Hodgkin as well, so I tell my students, is that you can find scientists everywhere in the world. And so um, when my laboratory was bigger, I should have been retired for 10 years, you, you must understand. And the university thinks that older people ought to have smaller labs, even if they're more productive than other people. I call it ageism. <laughs> uh, anyway, what I discovered was that in my laboratory 10 years ago, we could speak 33 languages. You know, last Saturday, I had another party for my team now. It's smaller. Uh, we did the same thing. Each of us talked to somebody else uh, in one language, uh, but they translate it into English and then speak to somebody in a second language. And we could do 22 languages. So we're smaller now, but still we're diverse. So the third message is you can learn from everybody in the world and you can bring them together. So these three messages, I, I think, gender, balance, uh, interdisciplinarity and, and worldwide participation. You're ahead of your time. You were always ahead of your time by the sounds of things. <laughs> <laughs> Could say that. Professor, what do you want us to think about next time we're going to the doctor or taking some drugs? I'd like you to think next time you go to a medical doctor in Europe, in Australia, in the United States how lucky you are to have access to some of the medicines that we have been, and my colleagues, of course, many people making. Because the real challenge is not just to make the drug, which costs a lot of money, but to make sure that it's available not just to the rich, but to the world in general. So I'd like you to remember next time you have a drug, uh, which in Australia, in England, in UK you can get, that we need to make them available to everyone in the world. Professor Thomas Blundell, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you to Professor Sir Thomas Blundell from the University of Cambridge. And thanks to our reporter, Dr Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on September 26, 2019. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Audio engineering by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2019, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this episode, review us on Apple Podcasts and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.